I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the authors and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This series contains discussions of violence and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Algorithm. Four years after Thomas Hargrove had tried to warn Gary, Indiana, that they might have a serial killer, the police one town over in Hammond, Indiana, arrested Darren Vaughn. How many people are you responsible for killing? In this lifetime, I couldn't even tell you. Vaughn led investigators to six bodies, and while the M.O. matched one of the patterns Hargrove had identified, young women who had been strangled and left in abandoned buildings, none of these victims were on Hargrove's list. They were all more recent murders that had been committed after Hargrove sent the letter to Gary. But in a press conference, police mentioned that Vaughn had confessed to murders going back 20 years, and the Hammond mayor wrote he'd confessed to a couple of murders in 94 and 95. He told Hammond police that he had been active going back to the mid-90s, and I would take him at his word. So was Vaughn responsible for the killings that Hargrove's algorithm had picked up on? Or was something else going on? This episode, we explore what Vaughn was doing back in the 90s. From iHeartMedia and Tenderfoot TV, this is Algorithm. I'm Ben Kiebrick. Hargrove's algorithm had identified 15 homicides between 1991 and 2007. A first step in figuring out if Vaughn was responsible for these murders or other cold cases is figuring out where he was living and what he was doing during that period. Vaughn told detectives that in the early 80s, he was recruited into a gang, the Gangster Disciples, by an older boy named Big E or Big Mike. But Vaughn's brother Reginald didn't buy this story. Okay. 
his friend Big Mike. He likes to talk about. Talk about him and Big Mike grew up in the home together. Him and Big Mike did this. He remember him and Big Mike did that. But nobody in my family knows Big Mike. Nobody's ever seen Big Mike. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, come on now, it's not plausible. Big Mike is a fictional character, as far as I'm concerned. When was the last time he said I was with Big Mike? He just, like, when he gets to talk about the old days and stuff like that, he likes to build himself up to be like, I don't know how to put it, man, a uh, fucking guy complex. He, he tells stories of, like, you know, back in my day, I could have sold all these drugs, you know what I'm saying? I could have been a kingpin, this and that. It, you know, bragging, you know what I'm saying? But, but I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting here, I'm, I'm telling you, y'all can look around how you want to, but I know it's not plausible, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's not plausible that he exists? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Well, did, I mean, did you think any of this was plausible? No. Let me, let me try to explain this, man. We, we don't we don't know your brother like you know your brother. Yeah. I mean, that's why we're that's why we're here. It's just like, all right, fuck it. You, you talk to somebody, and they come with this crazy-ass story, and they just have to one-up you. You know what I'm saying? And when I talk to him, sometimes I just start noticing, you know, he does that. You know what I'm saying? We had a conversation with the uh, fucking neighbor. He was like, yeah, I remember a teacher got killed at Roosevelt. Roosevelt is one of the high schools in Gary. Like, you remember, you remember, you know, trying to egg me on. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I remember no teacher getting killed at Roosevelt. But that's the type of shit he does. Um, like, how did that conversation spark? Um, we, we was talking about, uh, <laughs> we was talking about, uh, White people in Gary. That's uh, fine. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I ain't want, you know. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So, uh, and we, we was pretty much having one of those conversations. You know, it, it was me, him, and the neighbor who even told him, like, no, nah, that's not right. I don't remember it. no teacher getting care of him. That was the last time we had a conversation with him. Let me ask you this: When he talks about Big Mike, does he ever see him and Big Mike? do this or have Big Mike do that or uh, what's, what's that conversation? It's, it's, it's like in a past tense, you know, it's about selling drugs, you know, gang shit, you know what I'm saying? Is he in the gang? No. Is he in the gang? Yeah. What does he say What's he claim? <laughs> what's he claim? Uh, disciple. Disciple. Yeah, man, but uh, as far as I can call him, man, he was that nerdy kid who wanted to be bad. Like, he'd come home and watch cartoons and dance movies and swear he hardcore, you know what I'm saying? It, it, to me, it don't make no sense, you know, but uh, you brought up a good point, though, like, I think this shit was plausible, but I really don't think Big Mike is a real fucking person. When you started talking about Big Mike, you said, fuck it, here it goes, Big Mike. Why did it seem like that was a lot for you to let out? Because it, it's like, I honestly don't believe this this dude is real, okay? And it's borderline crazy to have flashbacks of somebody who ain't real, okay? I I don't see how he could be real. And my brother told me these, these stories of grandeur about how him and him you still have keys and stuff like that. And I've, I've never seen my brother with more money, you know? 
than the average person. Vaughn's lawyers also had their doubts about some of Vaughn's stories. Here's Goiko Kosic. All of us, I think, at some point in time, thought that Darren would tell us some things that were either puffing or maybe just going ahead and obfuscating things. Because, I mean, let's face it, the guy was charged with uh, multiple death penalty counts and to expect a, a full, honest answer. Um, but he was in denial on some things. We, we found some people who were at Thelma Marshall with him, a couple of white brothers. And Darren would tell us that he was not being bothered Thelma Marshall because he was physically stronger than the other people that were Thelma Marshall. And they looked at us like we were, they said he was the smallest kid there. He was tiny. We had to protect him. He was always getting picked on and pushed around by the others. And, and Darren swears that didn't happen. So in his mind, be it from the organic injury or something he had convinced himself, there were episodes in Darren's life that he remembered completely different than what we had credible evidence for happening in another fashion. It's hard to know what to make of all of this. It's clear that Vaughn isn't always a reliable narrator of his own life, and many of his stories sound crazy. But also, many of the things that he did do, like strangling seven women over the course of a year, might have sounded made up as well. This is a point in the story where I'd like to reach out to you, to our listeners. I'd really like to get in touch with someone who went to the Thelma Marshall home at the same time as Vaughn, or anyone who knew him or this Big E or Big Mike guy. Please call and leave us a voicemail. You can get the number in the show notes or at the end of the episode. And maybe you can give us the inroad we need to help figure out how much of Vaughn's story we can trust. Regardless of whether Big E was real or just a figment of Vaughn's imagination, Vaughn was soon drawn away from Gary. At 16, he was reunited with his mom. And your mother picked you up? She didn't pick me up. Y'all, sister gave me back to her. Okay. Vaughn's mother was now almost 30, and she was living with a new partner and two young children. Reginald, Vaughn's half-brother, who you heard from earlier, was just three at the time. And Regina, Vaughn's stepsister, was just six. For Vaughn, it was a big adjustment. I'd been on my own for so long. I didn't know nothing about no family. And soon after Vaughn rejoined his mother, the family moved to Lima, a small Rust Belt city in northwest Ohio. To me, it was just in the middle of no damn where. That was a culture shock. They didn't have no gangs at that time. Lima might not have had gangs, but Vaughn's life was turbulent. Even though his mother was older and more mature, she still had issues. She suffered from schizophrenia and struggled with addiction to hard drugs. And Vaughn was often running away from home. Sometimes he hitchhiked the 200 miles back to Gary. I ran away, caught a truck, walked part of the way, and came home to my grandfather's house. They was looking for me in Ohio. Did your grandpa keep you there? No, he called my mom. He called? Right, he was like, just come get him. Don't mess with him because you know he's going to get violent. Vaughn's stepsister, Regina, was young enough that she didn't know everything that was going on, but she told police Vaughn's mother was physically abusive. She was definitely um, abusive. I know she was abusive. I, I know she was, because we share a sibling, and I know for a fact that she was abusive to that sibling from a man that she loved and was taking care of that child. I can only imagine 
what she had no problem doing to her other son that right. wasn't being taken care of. Now, when you say abusive, like verbally abusive, physically I abusive? I don't recall all the different incidents, but right. I know she was. Right. I mean, that's why we're asking because, you know, it, it's important for us Mindset. to also know where he's coming from because that might actually help us, mm-hmm. you know, find a lot more things out about him. So, um, so she was definitely abusive. Regina says that when she got older, family members told her that when Vaughn's mom got really mad, she'd make Vaughn cover his skin with alcohol, presumably so that his wounds would sting as she beat him. This is when I was growing up. I heard it in the household. From the other siblings right. telling you about it? Right. I really don't remember, but I do remember this alcohol. I thought it was a little different. In 1990, Vaughn graduated from Lima Senior High School and moved back to Northwest Indiana. He says that that's when he made the first of what he calls his mistakes, killings that were not gang-related or intended at all. So were these the 20-year-old murders that the police and mayor were referring to? Vaughn first told detectives about these killings on the second night of the death march. He'd just finished leading Detective Ford and Captain Hinojosa to three more bodies in abandoned buildings in Gary. Being Hammond police, Ford and Hinojosa asked Vaughn whether he had any murders to confess to that had taken place specifically in Hammond. Vaughn directed the police to a vacant lot in southwest Hammond where a bar had once been located. Vaughn said he'd robbed an older couple there sometime back in the early 90s. That building was abandoned then? Yeah. And so these two people, why were they in the building? I was robbing them. Well, but how did you get them there to... Gunpoint, I was robbing them. Because everybody used to cut through that empty lot. It used to be a way to cut through the back. So I ordered them at gunpoint into the building. And then robbed them. What'd you get out of the robbery? Do you remember? It was was something small. I remember it. I was, like I said, I was like... Was it just money? It was just money. That's all I was after. I was just a kid then. After walking forward in Hinojosa through his memories of the robbery turned double homicide, Vaughn guided detectives to an alley between Drackert and Becker Street. Vaughn told detectives he'd gotten into a fight there and ended up shooting a man. You said that you shot him near the telephone pole that was directly across right. from there. How many times do you think you shot him? About three. Three? Do you know what caliber gun you had or anything like Back that? Back then, I was carrying a twenty-five. I know exactly what I was covering Karen in 1990 because I know who gave it to me. I remember exactly. That was your sweet feet. That's what they gave all us middle monsters back then. 22s and 25s were running rapid for all us youngsters. I think these likely are the murders that police referred to in the press conference after Vaughn's arrest when they mentioned crimes going back 20 years. But it's a bit confusing because Vaughn says in the interrogation that these murders took place around 1990 or 91. And in the account that the mayor wrote on Facebook, he said Vaughn had confessed to murders in 94 and 95. Vaughn isn't great with dates, so maybe he changed his story at some point. As far as I can tell, Hammond police have yet to connect these confessions to any reported crimes. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. 
experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To briefly recap, after graduating high school, Vaughn returned to Northwest Indiana in 1990, and he told police that around that time, he shot at least three people in Hammond. Then, Vaughn's life took a major shift, and in December 1991, he enlisted with the Marines. Vaughn was first shipped out to San Diego, where he went through boot camp and got combat training. Then, he trained as a missile system operator in El Paso, Texas. And from July 1992 to September 1993, he was stationed in Cherry Point, North Carolina. Here's his lawyer, Kosich. I think in North Carolina, they got in a big brawl, and he got hit in the head with a chair. and doesn't remember what happened, and there were a couple of other head injuries that he suffered. In 1993, Vaughn received an other-than-honorable discharge from the Marines. 
let's just say that in the military he got discharged because of an act of insubordination of some kind. It was really not related to the case. Is the insubordination that thing you mentioned earlier with the head damage? No, no, I can't. You know, Darren didn't take orders well. <laughs> you know, he he didn't like being told what to do, and um, which I think has gone throughout his entire life and goes all the way back to age four. And at a certain point in time, they decided, okay, you don't want to take orders. I guess we don't need you as a Marine. And he said, okay, fine. So that was that. And how come you got kicked out? Undisciplinary behavior. Good soldier, bad at home, as they say. What, what led to this uh, discharge? Disappearing. Really? Disappearing. We ain't gonna fight nobody, go home. <laughs> So you just kind of went AWOL or whatever they call it? or well, I, wasn't really, I told them I was going to be late coming back, but, you know, that's still AWOL. Yeah. Like, I don't be late. Uh, I'm in Hammond. I'm in Gary. I, I'll get back. I mean, well, I ain't seen nothing pressing. We're not at war. Vaughn wasn't that interested in serving his country. What he really wanted was to die in the battlefield. Vaughn told Detective Ford he'd taken out a big life insurance policy with the hopes of dying in combat and then giving the insurance settlement to his younger brother, Reginald. That's all reason I joined. We're supposed to be going to war. Okay. So you're out in 93. In 93, you come back to Gary? Come back to Hammond. To Hammond? To Hammond. Started living right for a minute. Had a good life for a few minutes. Sometime around this point, Vaughn met the woman who'd later become his wife. Good woman, bad guy. I tell all the time she married a terrible person. She believe you? Yeah, she knows I have a terrible temper. She said I'm a good guy because I take care of the house, I take care of that thing. I would just have a terrible temper. It was an unusual relationship for sure. Vaughn would have been around 22 years old, and the woman, Maria, was 51, 29 years older than him. Maria was an Italian immigrant with kids nearly Darren's age. Shortly after Vaughn's arrest, she told the New York Times that she'd met Vaughn through some mutual friends. She described him as, quote, intelligent, very relaxed, very nice to everyone. But what Maria saw as kind and quiet, her son Ed interpreted differently. Ed spoke to CNN shortly after Darren's arrest. First of all, I didn't like it for her to marry a guy almost my age, number one. Number two, he was just a strange guy. I walk in and I would see him talking to himself and you say hello, he's like, hello, and looks down to the ground. He was always in deep thought, always, like he had something else on his mind other than where he was. When a person walks around talking to themselves and looking like they're answering themselves, something's wrong with him. And then I hear this thing that he killed some people. I'm like, okay, he finally popped. Around 1995, just a couple years after he'd started dating Maria, Vaughn says he got sucked back into the gang life when his old mentor, Big E, was killed. Vaughn says that during the time he spent in the Marines, the gangster disciples had fractured and split up into small competing cliques. There was no longer any need for gang enforcers, and Vaughn felt like an outsider. Like, where the hell all this shit all changed down, yeah? Friends was killing friends, uncles was killing brothers. It, it was like, you can't trust nobody. No. 
Gary was number one capital mm-hmm. murder place back then. Because all the killing that was going on, I remember that. That's the years we was running the streets. Vaughn says he struggled to adjust to this new gang hierarchy, and Maria, his 50-year-old girlfriend, struggled with his return to criminal life. Things came to a head when one of the other gang members got arrested. Somebody else got busted on the murder. And they thought that person was going to tell on me, and they thought I was going to tell. They tried to murder me. Vaughn says some gang members jumped him and started beating him. They busted open his head, but he got away. When he got home, Maria was terrified. When my head got busted mm-hmm. open, she wanted me to tell on everybody. Now, that's, oh, that's not how it worked. She was highly upset about that. That's how I ended up in Texas. To escape, Vaughn and Maria moved to Austin. And in 1995, they married in City Hall in front of a few friends. I got married in Texas. Yeah, married now, I asked one year because it wasn't important. I married the wrong female. <laughs> I told her, you want to get married, you know I'm in love with another chick I married because she was in love with me. She married a person, didn't love her, tried to take care of me, but I am who I am. We all are. People are told, like, you know your husband's a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. But she didn't, she's like, oh, yeah, he'll always protect us, right? That's how she looked at him. He'll go out of his way to protect us. Actually, without her, y'all probably caught me years ago because she gave me balance. You don't need to do this. You got good mind, you work. And maybe Maria did provide Vaughn with some balance and stability because for a while, it seemed like Vaughn's life was getting back on track. Vaughn says he got a job in Austin working for Dell Computers. You worked for Dell Computers? Yeah. What'd you do? Assembly, put computers together, program. In Texas? Yeah. Nice. I work for Dell. I work for Exxon. I work. I work for some some nice computer companies. Maria's son Ed, though, remembered it souring quickly. You know how it is when you first move someplace. It's a new little relationship. He he probably was in the happiest moment of his life. I don't know. He got some lady to marry him. Okay, but after that, you know, I think he worked for a temp agency that had him working over at Dell. They fired him. You know, and from that moment on, he, he went downhill. He became a creepy dude. You know, he wanders around at night. My mom didn't think nothing unstrange about it. I said, Mom, your boyfriend or husband, whatever you want to call him, he's running around at nighttime on Lundberg. Mom, you know what kind of neighborhood that is? That's a prostitution strip. He was a strange dude. He was doing something. They need to be checking here in Austin. He might have been doing something more than just that one girl. As we'll get into in the next episode, Vaughn did have at least one victim in Austin. And there are cold cases in Austin that are worth exploring as well. But while Maria's son Ed identifies Vaughn's firing from Dell as the start of Vaughn's downward spiral, Vaughn himself identifies another moment as the point where he snapped, the incident he could never come back from. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sometime around the year 2000, Vaughn and Maria moved back to Gary. Vaughn told Detective Ford he'd returned for a family obligation. And I came home because another incident happened. One of our new cousins got killed. We all came home. The whole family came home, I should say. You said it's your cousin that got killed? Right. Uh, what, why did that make everybody move home? Because it was a retaliation time. Who was that that got killed? I don't know your cousin's name. I told you I'm not family orientated. I only came back because my other cousin asked me to come back. At first, it might sound like Vaughn's bullshitting when he says he doesn't know his cousin's name. But remember, Vaughn didn't meet any of his family until he was 12. Still, his shakiness with these kind of details makes it hard to pin down exactly where he was at a given time. Vaughn's stepsister, Regina, says that after he graduated high school in 1990, she lost touch with him. We really got close back in 2003 after I broke off my engagement. 
He stayed with me for two months. I told him, you know, you only got X amount of days to live here. He moved out. Regina says that at the time, Vaughn was unhappy with his marriage. He was 32 then and wanted to have a kid, but his wife Maria was now over 60. Maria told the New York Times that this was when their relationship started to fall apart. She said, quote, I didn't want to be with him anymore. He had single friends. There were signs that he was going with somebody else. And Maria was right. Vaughn had told his stepsister that he'd met another woman, that he was in love with her, and that his wish to have a child was coming true. He'd gotten his new girlfriend pregnant. Vaughn's new girlfriend was a woman named Sharitha. She liked that he was smart and didn't drink or do drugs. She told the Daily Mail that his idea of a night out was going to Barnes & Noble and reading books, usually science fiction or Harry Potter. Sharitha knew Vaughn was married, but he and Maria were living separately at that point, and he told Sharitha that he had only gotten married in the first place because he hated being alone. But as Sharitha and Vaughn's relationship progressed, she learned that Vaughn had a dark side. He'd get jealous easily. He didn't want her having her own friends. And he became increasingly controlling. Sometimes, he would lock her inside the house when he went to work. She said that one time, when they were visiting her mother's house, he hogtied her and covered her mouth with duct tape so she couldn't scream. Sharitha realized she had to get out of the relationship, but when she would try to end things, Vaughn would threaten her and her mother. One night, Vaughn made Sharitha go out on a walk with him. He took her out to a desolate part of Gary, and surrounded by abandoned buildings, he told her, I could easily make you disappear. Accounts of what happened next in Vaughn and Sharitha's relationship are hazy. I tried to reach out, but I couldn't get in contact with her, and her one published interview in the Daily Mail doesn't address this point, but it appears that in 2004, Sharitha and Vaughn had their child, but shortly after the birth, something happened and the child died. And around this same time, Sharitha escaped from the abusive relationship, left Vaughn, and went into hiding. And this is where Vaughn says he snapped. He became enraged and blamed Sharitha for the child's death. I just snapped at that moment. So we had lost the child and we were going through that um, orange period. She was out getting high and took my money to the dope man. And I was like, that's just too goddamn But I'm like, fuck it. If you want to fuck up like this, we just going to get this shit over with. But we all went back out of control again. I never made it back. And once you... I don't know how to explain it to y'all because y'all don't have the same murders. No way for me to explain murder rages. Once you start killing again, it becomes... It's like any other day. It's like if I was... I'm not an alcoholic, right. but if I were and I started to drink, you're off to the races. Right. That's basically how to explain because you have the urge to hunt. Some people I talk to say they don't understand it. Like, I went to talk to a therapist, but he wanted too much knowledge because he said he had to report all crimes you know what I'm saying so you can't really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard it would definitely be hard to explain your problem to somebody who had to right. so you can't go like I need help with your problem it's like killing people 
He said, well, have you killed anybody? And that's when the discussion's gonna get a little fucked. Next time on Algorithm. I bust the gas pipe and had the whole building filled with gas. I tried to set the girl on fire, be on fire, and blow the building up all at the same time. Sometimes you wish a scenario had it went different. In 2004, maybe some people would still be alive. If you look at like police stories, the police stories are almost always told from the perspective of catching the wrongdoer. My story starts, okay, you caught him, now what? You know, what's the rest of the story? I feel I shouldn't have got locked up for that. Yeah, I'll beat her, but I ain't rape you. Well, I'll rape you by that standard y'all call it rape, but we don't call it rape. And Street's like, mm-hmm. you pay her, so what is she complaining about? This episode was written and produced by me, Ben Kiebrick. Algorithm is executive produced by Alex Williams, Donald Albright, and Matt Frederick. Production assistance and mixing by Eric Quintana. The music is by Makeup and Vanity Set and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Christina Dana, Miranda Hawkins, Jamie Albright, Rima Elkeali, Trevor Young, and Josh Thane for their help and notes. Hey. Hope you're continuing to enjoy the show. If you do have any information about Darren Vaughn or crimes that you think might be related to this case, or if you just have questions or comments that you want addressed on the podcast, please call and leave me a voicemail at 888-501-3309. That's 888-501-3309. You can also reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Ben underscore Kiebrick. That's B-E-N underscore K-U-E-B-R-I-C-H. And that contact info is also available in the show notes for the episode. Thanks. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.